This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. We have two exciting randomized trials to tell you about today. John, what do you have up for us first? So first, we're going to talk about dermatomyositis, believe it or not. Uh, This is a trial of IVIG and dermatomyositis by Agarwal et al., published October 6, 2022, New England Journal of Medicine. What was the research question? The question here was, is IVIG efficacious and safe in patients with dermatomyositis? All right, you've caught my attention, but what piqued your attention about this trial? Yeah, so I mean, first, I don't think I've seen a ton of trials involving patients with dermatomyositis. As you know, dermatomyositis is an autoimmune disease characterized by both skin and muscle abnormalities. Steroids are the first-line treatment, and IVIG has been used as kind of a second or third-line option, but its use has largely been off-label. You know, there's kind of some small randomized trials of like 15 patients and a few observational studies to suggest effectiveness. But IVIG does have some side effects, and it's associated with thromboembolic events. And so the purpose of this study was to say, well, you know, what's the data? Is it actually efficacious and safe in patients with dermatomyositis? Okay. So what was the study design here? Well, there's a fair bit of detail here, but we'll try to keep it as relevant as possible. So this was a phase three double-blind RCT, and it was done across 36 centers in Europe and in North America. Patients were enrolled from 2017 to 2019. They had to be age 18 to 80 with definite or probable active dermatomyositis. Uh, The patients had to have already been on steroids and they could have been on other immunosuppressant agents as well, up to two other drugs. You were excluded if you were on a biologic, cyclophosphamide specifically, if you'd already been on IVIG, or if you're on topical steroids. And the focus here was dermatomyositis, and so other types of myositis like cancer-associated, IBM, necrotizing, etc., those patients were not included. They also excluded patients with a history of hypercoagulable states or any history of thromboembolic events. Now, disease activity was measured based on a number of measures, including strength, uh, some different global assessment scores, as well as muscle enzyme levels. Patients were randomized, and they were stratified by disease activity scores. Essentially, people were grouped into kind of mild, moderate, or severe disease types. And the randomization procedure itself, so you either got IVIG, which was 2 grams per kilogram every four weeks, versus placebo. There was kind of this other component to the trial where there was like an extension arm, and there was also like if you had clinical deterioration, there was a crossover consideration, but we'll kind of focus on the bigger picture stuff. There was a lot of concern that patients were going to be at higher risk for venous thromboembolic events, in part because of IVIG side effect profile, but also because patients with autoimmune conditions, you know, are at high risk for those things. And so due to those concerns, they were actually calculating well scores after each infusion to then gauge what the risk profile might look like to then do further investigations like Dopplers and D-dimers. Now, when it came to the outcomes, the primary outcome was response as defined by the total improvement score of at least 20. And this actually indicated at least minimum improvement. The total improvement score is this weighted composite score reflecting six different measures of myositis activity, including some of those things we already talked about, like strength, global assessment scores, and other kind of components. There were a whole other number of secondary endpoints, and then they also looked at safety, serious adverse events, and fatalities. Gotcha. Okay. So a lot of information, as you alluded to, if we can distill it down, it sounds like this is a double-blind, randomized controlled trial of adults with dermatomyositis And the major outcome here was really response defined using what sounds like a complex multi-level score. And they also looked at adverse events, in particular venous thromboembolism. Does that sound about right? I think that's a pretty good summary. Yeah. 
All right. And what did the patients look like who were enrolled? So 126 patients were screened and 95 patients were enrolled, 47 to IVIG and 48 to placebo. 72% of patients in both groups completed the extension phase of the trial. Now, when it came to the patients themselves, 71% had definite dermatomyositis. The average age was 52, 75% were female. The median time since diagnosis was about two and a half years. And at that time, about 88% of them were on steroids, 68% were on non-steroid medications. And considering disease severity, about 27% of patients had mild disease, 59% had moderate, and 14% had severe disease. All right, so what did they find? Was IVIG better than placebo or not so much? Yeah, so at 16 weeks, they did show a response of at least minimal improvement was observed in 79% of patients in the IVIG group compared with 44% in the placebo group. Um, improvement was seen in IVIG across all disease activity groups. Now, with regards to the secondary endpoints, they then did some further considerations like, you know, that first measure was really just the minimal improvement. But if they looked at more of a moderate improvement, it was observed in 68% of patients in IVIG compared with 23% in placebo. And a major response, 32% of patients with IVIG and 8% of patients with placebo. Now, after 40 weeks, however, what they really showed was no big difference. 71% in the IVIG group had a minimum improvement, but this was compared with 70% in the placebo group who had a minimum improvement. When it came to safety data, adverse events were more common in the IVIG group, 58% of patients versus 23%. And the commonest were things like headache, pyrexia, nausea. Most of these reactions happened within 72 hours of the infusion. Serious adverse events happened in 6% of patients who got IVIG compared with 4% in placebo. And there were eight VTE events that which occurred across six patients who received IVIG. Gotcha. Okay. So really it sounds like at 16 weeks, they certainly found an improvement in this complex scoring system. But then by weeks 40, it sort of seemed like it was a bit awash and there was an increased risk of blood clots with IVIG. Is that right? Yeah, that is. Huh. Okay. So what are the main limitations of this study? Well, as you've already really alluded to, it was a pretty complicated primary endpoint kind of composite score. Uh, other things to consider is that it was a pretty low bar as the original primary outcome. And specifically, they were looking at minimal improvement. But does a patient really care about minimal improvement or do they want to see more moderate or significant improvement in their overall functional status? You know, of course, this was a small trial, but what do you expect? Like, this is a very rare disease state. And the big question is, well, there was no longer term benefit. And why was that? Why was it that, you know, at the end of the trial, placebo was as good as getting IVIG? I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I have less concerns about their outcome of a minimal improvement just because there's such a long track record of clinical trialists using these continuous outcomes without actually powering them to what the known you know minimal improvement is so i have less of a concerns with that but i agree right like the average patient be like wait a second <laughs> i want more than minimal uh, improvement but but i do get that's why they or that's how they powered their trial because as you said this is such you know an overarching rare disease anyway what's a take home point from your end the take-home here, I think, is that IVIG was associated with a relative global improvement compared with placebo, but there were higher rates of adverse events. And is this practice changing for you? 
you know, this is not a common clinical presentation, but when they're sick enough to be in the hospital, they are sick. And in fact, I've already seen a lot of my rheumatology colleagues use IVIG in the uh, admitted patient with dermatomyositis flares. You know, I think I'm still going to be consulting room to get their expertise about what the next steps in treatment should look like. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's good that we at least know there's another tool we can reach to in our toolkit. And yes, there is an increased risk of blood clots, but a relatively small number overall. And we have medications that can prevent those. Anyway, cool study. We're going to change gears now. And um, this study also published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Not. This one was published in Lancet. And it was also recent. Not. This was published multiple years ago. It was called The Effect of a High-Dose 24-Hour Infusion of Tranexamic Acid on Death and Thromboembolic Events in Patients with Acute GI Bleeding, the HALT-IT trial, an international randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial published in 2020 in Lancet. All right, we're going to be digging way back here uh, two years ago. Um, it's a very important question, though, and I actually remember a trainee asking me just the other day about why don't we use tranexamic acid in GI bleeds, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What's the question here? So the question is, does tranexamic acid reduce a person's risk of death among patients hospitalized with a GI bleed? All right, I think this is important for a lot of reasons, but what did you think? Well, I think number one, I, I feel like Lancet maybe feels a bit neglected from our podcast. You know, we always talk about New England Journal of Medicine. I'm worried they feel left out. I got an email from their editor-in-chief the other day saying, please, can you include one of our randomized trials? So I thought, okay, yeah, sure. That's an important enough reason. And then also, John, a resident asked me why I did give tranexamic acid and whether or not I was aware of this study that showed potential worse outcomes or harm, really, and I didn't. So those were two reasons right there. And the third one, we see GI bleeds all the time on GIM. I often use tranexamic acid for patients who appear sick with an upper GI bleed, and that's based on a Cochrane review showing a 40% relative risk reduction in death. But with a relatively small number of trials and included patients and potential signs of harm. All right. How'd they do this study? So this was an international randomized controlled placebo controlled blinded trial in 164 hospitals in 15 countries between 2013 and 2019. And they also allowed deferred consent. I'm a big fan of that when you can do it. Notably, randomization was not concealed. This wasn't like centrally done through a you know, computer system. Instead, there were like these treatment packs in a box. So depending on which pack you got, that determined what the patient was randomized to. Uh, inclusion criteria, essentially it was pretty clean. The attending physician had to be uncertain whether to use tranexamic acid. Um, patients had to be 18 years and older, and they had to have a significant bleed. They defined this in quotes, as at risk of bleeding to death. And it didn't matter if it was upper or lower. There were very few exclusion criteria. Um, the intervention here was one gram of tranexamic acid over 10 minutes, uh, followed by three gram infused over 24 hours. The comparator was placebo. And the outcome, the primary outcome, was death due to bleeding within five days, um, excluding patients who received neither dose of the allocated treatment um, or where death information was unavailable. I'll note up front, number one, the cause of death was as per the local physician, but then it was reviewed by the chief investigator of the study, and this was a blinded review. And I should also note that initially the primary outcome uh, was all-cause mortality, but they had to change it over time because they had data showing 
I guess from this study and probably from other studies, that there was no effect on non-bleeding deaths, which I guess makes sense. And they did a modified intention to treat analysis to analyze their primary outcome. Okay. Um, early on, you mentioned something about deferred consent. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, deferred consent is the premise that you randomize a patient and you consent them later. So um, this became very popular for um, critical care trials, uh, mainly pioneered in Australia and New Zealand, where a patient might be coming in and needing to be intubated. There's no time to consent them for some study, whether the study was about lots of fluid or a little bit of fluids or a study of high-dose Tylenol versus no Tylenol. Uh, these were real examples of studies. So the premise there is that if you have somebody critically ill, there's just no time to even consent them. So you randomize them and it's deferred when they get extubated or when a family member comes, um, consent occurs at that point in time. And they argued, it's quite interesting actually, if you, if you read their methods as I did, they said severe GI bleeding is a frightening experience and blood loss can impact on a patient's mental and emotional state, impairing their decision-making. The consent procedures consider this as well as a need to treat urgently, blah, 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 blah. And essentially, if they couldn't consent the patient and they couldn't consent their substitute decision maker, they randomized and deferred consent until the patient was better. All right. So what do the patients look like? So there was 12,000 included uh, in this randomized trial which I'll note up front, is really impressive. 99.5% uh, received the treatment um, that they were randomized to. Mean age was 58. 65% were men. The mean time from bleeding event to time of randomization was 22 hours. 90% um, were in upper GI bleed. 87% um, of patients had a systolic blood pressure above 90. 40% uh, though did have signs of shock. So, you know, pretty sick. 10% um, were taking anticoagulants. I think a crucial point is that 40% had liver disease and half of the patients had a suspected variceal bleed. Oh, that's pretty good to know because it becomes very relevant when I'm trying to sort of generalize these results. Okay, so what did they find? What was the main, main effect? So the primary outcome, which was death due to bleeding at five days, occurred in 4% of patients who got tranexamic acid and 4% of patients who got placebo. You don't need to be a statistician to tell that that means there was no effect, okay? A relative risk of 0.99. What they also looked at were safety endpoints. So there was a similar rate of arterial ischemic events like MI or stroke in the two groups, but there were more venous thromboembolism in individuals who got tranexamic acid compared to placebo. It was an 85% relative risk increase and a 0.4% absolute risk increase. They also looked at rebleeding within five days, and it was 0.5% lower in the tranexamic arm. So that's in the um, absolute scale, albeit with wide confidence intervals that included a possibility of no effect. Okay. So what were some of the limitations of the trial? Listen, first things first, this is incredible that they randomized this many patients. We know, especially in the pre-COVID era, that inpatient clinical trials, especially for people randomized, or I should say admitted on GIM, are incredibly rare. So I'm very, very impressed. However, you asked me about the limitations. I think number one is that half had a variceal bleed. It's pretty rare that I'm seeing a variceal bleed on GIM. 
Another limitation was that the time from bleed to randomization was 20 plus hours and probably a few more hours until they got the drug. Remember that in the postpartum literature where we know that tranexamic acid is extremely effective, usually it's given within three hours of the bleed. Another limitation is that this was high dose, four grams in 24 hours. And it also makes me think a lot about, you know, okay, they saw this increased risk of clotting, in particular venous thromboembolism. Does that mean tranexamic acid caused that? Maybe, or maybe instead it's this interaction of patients have liver disease, plus they get tranexamic acid, because we know patients with liver disease are at increased risk of clots at baseline. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And that is a nice explanation because I was like, I thought we weren't supposed to see higher rates of clots with TXA. What the heck? Uh, all right. What's the take home point here? You are right, John. We aren't supposed to. There was another trial published not too long ago. I think it was in the perioperative space. And they also showed an increased risk of clot with tranexamic acid, but they used really high doses, like seven grams. So that trial gave me some pause and made me think, okay, I can't go around spewing that tranexamic acid does not cause a clot. No, no, no. Just that low doses definitely don't, but high doses certainly can and appear to. Anyway, take home point, high dose tranexamic acid is not helpful and may harm patients who have a GI bleed, in particular in the setting of liver disease. All right. So what do you think? Are you going to still use TXA, kind of adjust your dose or get rid of it altogether? Yeah, I hope this isn't a cognitive bias here, but yeah, I'm going to keep giving tranexamic acid, okay? I will not give it to the patient at four grams. I will not give it to the patient who I'm suspecting a variceal bleed, for example, but in the patient with peptic ulcer disease or, or, or that's what I'm suspecting, I probably will. But this study really gives me pause when it comes to the dose that I'm going to be using. And truth be told, I usually give one gram or maybe two grams in 24 hours. All right. I like it. Cool, John. Shifting gears to the good stuff. What good stuff caught your eye recently? Uh, well, we'll have a link to the uh, article. I'm not sure if you saw this in the subway at all, but it was a little kind of, what do you call it? Some trolling on behalf of the government of Alberta in both Ontario and BC. But, uh, you know, Alberta, of course, oil is doing okay. And so it's kind of boom time right now. And the ads were to try to encourage people to come move to Alberta. You know, some of the, the jokes were pretty dry, but they're like an engineer, an accountant walk into the province and they all get jobs. So uh, little digs at uh, the other provinces, if you will. It was kind of funny. Ouch, Alberta. I'm so hurt and offended. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they already got you, John, but I, I know it wasn't for the oil. Um, that's for sure. All right. What do you got, Mike? Or their politics, I should say. Okay. What do yeah, I have? We won't get, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. What do I have? Um, so this good stuff, it's actually from, his name is Jamie Riggs. I think he's an emergency medicine resident at UFT. And he had this great thread um, that sort of opens with CBME or competency-based medical education and is a divisive issue in Canadian med ed. On the one side, the powers that be who conceived and designed the system. On the other are those that use it daily while also trying to practice medicine. As someone from the latter camp, I think about how we can make it better, a thread. And he has a really nice thread. I think we could make it better by probably getting rid of it. It is a tremendous waste of time in my N of one uh, opinion, but I don't know what your thoughts are, John, on CBME. 
Oh yeah, I saw that thread and it does read pretty nicely. Uh, if the Royal College offered to get rid of it, I would not oppose. Yes, uh, me neither. That's for sure. I always find it incredible. We have a certain bar that we set for how we care for patients and you know what sort of evidence uh, we should have before we give a new treatment or stop something that we've been doing before. And then it seems like for medical education it's just somebody who says thou shalt do this and then we do it and usually it's the royal college and it's really pissing me off okay end of soapbox <laughs> oh that's good yeah I, I hear you man it's pretty annoying that's for sure yep agreed okay take care john i hope you don't have any uh, eiders or eiters or whatever they're called to fill out from your most recent block of service left to do thanks mike have a good week we'll talk to you later okay, take care the Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support. <laughs>